Amen. You know, the Bible records many different postures for prayer. Knees bent. It's a good way to pray. Eyes upward. Hands raised. Face down. The whole body lying prostrate on the ground. These and more are our biblically sanctioned postures for prayer. In fact, once three pastors, they were trying to decide which prayer stance or posture was best. As they talked, a telephone repairman, he worked in the background. Well, the first pastor, he felt the key was a bowed head and folded hands. The second pastor, he he disagreed. He said that real prayer couldn't occur unless you were on your knees. The last pastor, he insisted that the best posture was flat on your face before the Lord. It was a big debate. Well, finally, the telephone repairman, he couldn't resist jumping into the conversation. He was confident he knew the answer. He told the pastors, he said, Hey, the most powerful prayer I've ever prayed was while I was dangling upside down by my heels from a 40-foot power pole. How's that for a posture for prayer? Here's one last prayer posture. Your back against the wall. This is the posture of King Hezekiah's prayer. His back is against the wall. He's in dire straits. He's desperate and he's surrounded. A horde of ferocious, cutthroat, bloodthirsty troops are breathing down his neck. Hezekiah has nowhere to go but to God. King Hezekiah's prayer was a back-against-the-wall prayer. Have you ever prayed such a prayer? Have you prayed such a prayer this week? Some of my best prayers have been back-against-the-wall prayers. Often my prayers are sparked by scary circumstances. Situations that are stacked against me. Troubles have me hemmed in. There's an awful lot at stake. My back's against the wall, and I have nowhere to turn but up. This was the case for King Hezekiah of Judah. See, Hezekiah was in big-time trouble. A bad boy had moved into the neighborhood, and he wanted Hezekiah's spot on the playground. This bully was the dreaded Assyrian army. Apparently, the Assyrians had never heard of the Geneva Conventions, or humane treatment. They were the most heinous, brutal, cruel, bloodthirsty army to ever roam the earth. The Assyrians were a sword with no conscience. After conquering a village, they would take a prisoner. They would hold him on the ground, reach into his mouth, and rip out his tongue by its roots. Once a city had surrendered, the Assyrian torturers would then come in and amputate arms and legs, hack away feet, pluck out eyes, cut off lips and ears. And then as if defeating you and torturing you were not enough, they would then take your wife and kids and set fire to them before your very eyes. Meet the barbarians. It became an Assyrian trademark to set a pile of skulls right out at the gate of the conquered city just to remind those that had been left behind what would happen if they ever rebelled. Often the Assyrian troops would skin their prisoners alive like a hunter dressing a deer or a fisherman cleaning his catch. It's believed many of Hitler's crimes against the Jews were borrowed from the ancient Assyrians. You can't read about these Assyrians without it causing the hair on the nape of your neck to stand straight up. 
These were a cruel and a brutal people. Now, how would you like to see these fiendish foes camp just outside the walls of your city? We're talking probably 200,000 strong. Just about the population of Columbus, Georgia. That's how many there were. How would you like to see them outside your city? This was the dilemma facing King Hezekiah. This army had camped outside Jerusalem. You think you've been in some tight spots? Hezekiah's back has been pushed deep against the wall. Reminds me of the story from long ago when ships sailed the seven seas. A British naval captain was informed that a Spanish galleon was just off his port bow. He called for his first mate and he ordered, Quick, bring me my red vest and man the battle stations. A battle was fought. The ship defended. But the next day, the same lookout cried out, Five Spanish galleons off the starboard bow. Obviously, the enemy had gone back for reinforcements. Again, the captain called for his first mate and he barked instructions, Quick! Bring me my red vest and man the battle stations. Another battle raged at sea and the crew barely staved off the Spanish sailors. But the first mate, he started thinking. He said, why does the captain always go into battle wearing his red vest? And so he asked. Well, the captain replied. He said, well, if I ever get wounded in battle, I don't want my men to see me bleeding. So I wear my red vest so it'll absorb the blood and so they won't be able to know that I'm bleeding and they won't get discouraged and they won't lose heart. Oh, the first mate was so impressed. Man, I am serving such a brave ship captain. Well, the next day the Spaniards again attacked. This time the lookout shouted with a loud voice, I see the whole Spanish armada. Well, this time the captain called for his first mate and he shouted, Quick, bring me my red vest my brown pants, and man the battle stations. (laughs) Oh boy, on this occasion, the brave captain was just a little intimidated, just like Hezekiah. And yet Hezekiah didn't call for his red vest or for his brown pants. He called on the Lord. He prays. And his back against the wall prayer is recorded in Isaiah 37. We're going to read it, and then we're going to discuss how we can pray similar prayers. Verse 14 begins, And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and read it. And this was a threatening letter. It came from the Assyrian general. It was meant to intimidate Hezekiah into surrender. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, And spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. 
Hezekiah's prayer, a back-against-the-wall prayer, involves five steps. First, Hezekiah takes his concern to the Lord. Second, he spreads it out before the Lord. Third, he focuses his mind on the truth that he knows about God. Fourth, he looks at the situation from God's point of view. And then fifth, Hezekiah makes his request with God's glory in mind. If you're looking to remember it, just in case your back is ever up against the wall, here it is. In short, he takes it to, he spreads it out, he tunes it in, he turns it around, and he lifts it up. Here's how you pray back against the wall style. First, Hezekiah takes his concern to the Lord. Notice verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. Hezekiah receives an ugly, nasty letter. Hey, this is the kind of letter you turn over to the FBI. You examine the envelope for any white powder residue. I mean, the letter Hezekiah received from the Assyrian general was a terrorist threat. Perhaps you've received a troublesome letter lately. Maybe it was from an ex-spouse or an impatient creditor or your child's principal or the IRS or a disturbed neighbor or an angry vendor. Just this last week, I received an angry letter. Over the years, I've received my share of nasty letters. Hezekiah's letter was signed by the king of Assyria. You can read it in verses 10 through 13. It demands surrender. In essence, he says to Hezekiah, your cause is hopeless. Our army is invincible. You can't stop us. Other nations have tried. They trusted in their gods, but they were impotent to help. Jerusalem is going to get axed exactly as the other nations have fallen. The Assyrian king Sennacherib, he was actually fighting battles on several fronts at the time. And rather than pull troops from the south to help lay siege to Jerusalem... He hoped he could use this vicious letter to intimidate Hezekiah into surrender. Reminds me of the bombing of London in World War II. For months on end, the Nazis shelled the British capital unmercifully. It was as much to break the spirit of the British people as it was to cripple their industry. But during the bombing, one London church, they posted some advice on their marquee. The sign read, if your knees knock, kneel on them. This is what Hezekiah did. As soon as he read this letter, he took it immediately to the house of the Lord. Before he discussed it with his counselors or met with his cabinet or even put a phone call into his wife. Hey, before he posted it on Facebook and Twitter, he left the palace and he took this letter to the Lord. You see, back against the wall prayers, they eliminate all formality. In all protocol, they cut to the chase. There's no time for discussion or debate or friendly counsel. Back against the wall prayers run straight to the heart of God. Reminds me of the old Superman movies. After the fiendish villain revealed his diabolical scheme, someone would always jump in and suggest, it's time to call the police. And that's when you'd always hear the line, no, this is a job. Or Superman. Well, this is the attitude of Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah walks right past the experts and the generals and the counselors paid to give him advice. 
Oh, he may listen later, but he knows their opinion is not going to change the situation. His back is against the wall. And he knows he needs God's intervention. He takes his concern straight to the Lord. Then notice the second step. He spreads it out before the Lord. Just spreads it out. He took the letter and he unrolled the scroll and he laid it out. And in doing so, he took the whole situation and he just sort of spread out the details before the Lord. Hezekiah spills the beans. He gets it off his chest. He says to God, here it is, Lord. I've evaluated the pros and the cons. Here are the options as I see them. Lord, here are the details of my situation. Hey, when you receive a troublesome letter or a nasty bit of news, very quickly, you need to spread it out before the Lord. Just spread it all out. Take your situation and roll it all out. You see, even when there's no letter, when Sennacherib's threat comes in other forms, it can still be helpful to write it down as if it were a letter. Seldom do I ever pray without pen and paper in hand. You know, I'll write down the pros and cons as I see them. I'll list my options. Knowing full well God may just work in another way. But at least it helps to have a starting point. And a good place to begin is just to spread it all out. Of course, spreading it out is for our benefit, not the Lord's. We remember Jesus told us in Matthew 6, verse 8, Your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. God is well aware of our circumstances, the situation that has us surrounded. Never is our prayer breaking news to God. He knows us. Here's why it helped Hezekiah to spread out the letter. Not that he was informing God, no. But when he spread it out, he laid it down. And that's what God is after in us. He wants us to turn our problems over to the Lord and lay them down and leave them there. That's what Peter tells us. 1 Peter 5 verse 7, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. And I love Peter's choice of words. The Greek word translated casting, it means to throw upon. It's used of the blanket that's draped over the back of a horse. Here's what the Lord wants us to do with our cares and our worries. Just spread them out and throw them down over His shoulders. He promises to carry our burdens for us. Now this is my theory. It's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us. I guess you could say this is according to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. But I believe that Hezekiah took this letter, he spread it out before the Lord, and then he got up and he just left it there. Just left the letter, right? He walked out of the room without the letter. You see, by far, this is the toughest part of prayer. To leave it there once you spread it out. Have you ever had this problem? You cast your care upon the Lord, then you take it back. And you have to cast it and cast it and cast it. Kind of like a futile fishing trip. All you're doing is just casting out the line. Casting and casting. Over and over. This is why the next three components of Hezekiah's prayer are so vital. He leaves his problem with the Lord because, first, he focuses on who God is. And then he sees his situation from God's perspective 
And then he makes his request with God's glory in mind. He tunes it in, he turns it around, and then he lifts it up. Third, Hezekiah focuses his mind on the truth about God. Verse 15 tells us, Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, his eyes are on the Lord. Now Hezekiah could also look over the wall, and he could see Sennacherib's royal tent. It was surrounded by battalions of troops and chariots and battering rams. But Hezekiah is leaning on a king far greater. Remember where Hezekiah is praying. He's in the temple. God's presence is there, resting over the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the box were two golden angels, archangels. It was a model of the heavenly temple and the real angels that lived in the presence of the Almighty. See, Sennacherib, he's surrounded by these puny, mortal, earthly armies. But God has angelic, supernatural, invincible forces awaiting His next command. And here's where we need to correct a misconception. We talked about this a little last week. When you think of angels, I hope you don't think of short, little, chubby, baby-faced angels flittering around like hummingbirds, pointing their little toy bow and arrows at boys and girls in love. I hope that's not what you think of when you think of angels. That couldn't be further from the truth. I'll never forget one baseball season. I had to straighten this out with my little leaguers. That year, we were given the team name Angels. And everybody said, oh, no. Angels. Because they were thinking of the little Cupid angels, you know, the little baby-faced angels. That's what they were thinking of. And I had to send them down and give them a little Bible study. I said, guys, that's not what angels are. Angels are mighty warriors of God. They yield swords with blood dripping from them. Armies have been wiped out by one angel on a rampage. Those little guys, they're looking at me with his big eyes. You know. Wow, we're the angels. And I'll never forget one little kid, he said, Coach, if we win the championship, we'll be archangels. I said, you got it. Well, Hezekiah, he sees Sennacherib camped around wimpy mortals. In comparison, he sees the God of Israel seated in the heavens, attended by mighty angels who can wipe out the earth with one swipe of judgment. As Hezekiah's perspective sharpens, his faith in God begins to swell. What a difference it makes when we get our eyes on the truth about God. You know, it's amazing how often, though, we can lose perspective. Take, for example, the price of gasoline. Are you as up in arms over the price of gasoline as I am? $2.44 a gallon. That, that's terrible. But you can't think of it this way. If 20 ounces of Gatorade costs $1.59, that means that a gallon of Gatorade costs $10.17. If a 7-ounce bottle of Whiteout costs $1.39, that means a gallon of Whiteout costs $25.42. At $3.15 per 12 ounces, a gallon of brake fluid costs $33.60. You know those little travel-sized bottles of scope mouthwash? They're about an ounce and a half. 
They cost 99 cents. Did you know a gallon of that stuff is $84.84? And Vicks NyQuil, we're talking about liquid gold, it costs $8.35 for six ounces. That's $178.13 per gallon. That makes $2.44 for a gallon of gasoline a real deal. My point is, is it's so easy for us to lose perspective. This is the biggest problem with a problem. It's not the problem itself, but it's how the problem distorts our perspective. If we let it, the problem can become so pressing, so intimidating, so threatening, that we begin to think that the problem is bigger than our God. We focus on the strength of the problem rather than the superiority of God. In his book, Pain's Hidden Purpose, author Don Baker, he writes this, Pain speaks a strange language. It plays funny tricks on us. It must, makes us think things and say things and even believe things that are not true. Like God is dead, or He's gone fishing, or He just doesn't care. See, pain causes me to think that my problem is the one that has finally stumped God. Hezekiah refuses to yield to such confusion. In verse 16, he addresses the one true God of Israel. You are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. God doesn't need the reminder or the information. He's well aware of his position and his prominence. But it's a needed reminder to Hezekiah. He's keeping his eyes on God. You know, C.S. Lewis once made the statement, The first of all prayers is this. May it be the real I that prays, and let it be the real you that I pray to. Spreading out my desperate situation, being honest with my true thoughts and feelings, it makes sure that it's the real I that prays. But then, focusing on the truths of Scripture, on the power and the supremacy of the one and only God, that then ensures that it's the real you, Lord, that I pray to. When our back is against the wall, it's critical to our faith that we get a clear perspective of His goodness and His glory and His greatness. And then fourthly, notice, King Hezekiah prays. His prayer looks at the situation from God's point of view. He prays in verse 17. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. I mean, Hezekiah now turns this whole situation around. The king of Assyria has addressed this letter to Hezekiah. But in reality, it was an offense to God. As Hezekiah puts it, the words of Sennacherib reproach the living God. God, this is your problem, not mine. He's blaspheming you, Lord, not me. You see, if Hezekiah had dwelt on this for a while, he might even have felt sorry for Sennacherib. I mean, think about it. This man has blasphemed and cursed and defiled and degraded the Almighty, the Holy One. He needs to be pitied. I mean, it's as if he's blindfolded, speeding down the wrong side of the expressway, headed straight for an 18-wheeler. It's only a matter of time, man. God's judgment's going to wipe him out before he realizes what hit him. Look at what Hezekiah prays in verse 18. He says, Truly, Lord, 
The kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. You see, when the Assyrians went to battle, they viewed the conflict as sort of an our God versus your God proposition. Who's got the greater God? And because Assyria always won, they figured that they did. But in his letter, Sennacherib points out to Hezekiah that the gods of the nations that Assyria had conquered did nothing to help the people that trusted in them. Thus, he concluded, why would the God of Israel be any different? But see, Sennacherib's logic had one fatal flaw. The proud king never considered that the nations he conquered served worthless idols and that his army had never faced the one true God, keep knocking on the door and you'll find the true God eventually. That's what Sennacherib was about to find out. You see, back against the wall prayers, they major on this very point. They remind us that if we serve the one and only God, then our situation is different. It's not like everyone else's situation. Often doctors will point to precedent. They'll point out that no one has ever survived the disease you've contracted. Isn't that what Sennacherib is saying to Hezekiah? None of these other nations survived. Up until now, Assyria's march through the Middle East had yet to be contested. So why should Israel survive their siege? Doctors can be just like Sennacherib. They quote you the statistics, but they don't consider that your disease might just have run into the one true God who is all-powerful and can heal that disease. Perhaps you've been told by your friends or by a counselor that there's no way that your marriage can be reconciled. Every other couple who's ever had similar problems have seen their relationship dissolve. Why would your marriage be any different? Well, if you focus on your problem, it won't be. But if you add the God factor to your situation, if you plop God down in the middle of your marriage and you put your faith in Him, nothing is impossible. You see, you pray a back-to-the-wall prayer and God just might work a back-to-the-wall miracle. Well, finally, Hezekiah, he makes his request with God's glory in mind. Verse 20. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from His hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Hey, Hezekiah knows that God's glory is on the line here. His conflict with Assyria is not just a battle between two kings or a battle between two armies. This is a battle against God and Satan. And Hezekiah wants God to win so that all the world will recognize his sovereignty. Yet Hezekiah exemplifies the submission here that we need to emulate Does he care about his own hide? I would imagine he does. Who wouldn't? But you see, it's not just his own welfare. It's not just his own hide that concerns him. Hezekiah cares just as much about the glory of God and the reputation of God. Notice in verse 19, Hezekiah merges his obvious desire to be rescued with his desire for God to be glorified. And I believe any prayer that can't merge my concerns with God's glory is a prayer that I shouldn't even be praying. Remember 1 John 5 verse 14. He says, This is the confidence that we have in Him. 
that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. Notice the key to prayer is to pray according to God's will. It reminds me of the man who complained. He said, when I was 20, I prayed for a million dollars. When I was 30, I prayed for a million dollars. When I turned 40, I prayed for a million dollars. Now that I'm 50, I've come to two conclusions. Either I'm praying for the wrong thing or God isn't picking up His messages. Let me assure you, your unanswered prayers are not God's fault. You know, you can pray the wrong prayers. You can pray in the wrong way. I've prayed prayers that I'm glad God didn't answer. They were misguided. I know folks who make terribly selfish requests and because God doesn't then come and cater to their every whim, they conclude that He isn't taking messages. To these people, God is just a blessing dispenser up in the sky. Plug in a prayer prayer, and out pops a blessing. Hey, that is not the God of the Bible. That is not how God works. You see, what if a five-year-old kid sat down at the dinner table and asked for ice cream instead of vegetables? You see, just because his mother didn't satisfy his request doesn't mean she doesn't love him or that she doesn't care about him. How foolish. No, the mother sees a bigger picture. She cares about him in a deeper way, a way that he can't yet grasp and appreciate. In reality, the very fact that his mother doesn't cave into his demands and give him all he wants, that's the proof that she loves him. You see, back against the wall prayers, they're bold, they're desperate prayers. They cut to the chase and they exude great passion. But if you don't humble yourself when your back's against the wall, you've got a bigger problem than Sennacherib. Your bigger problem is your pride. Why in the world is your back against the wall? Why has God allowed this in your life? It's because He wants you to embrace His will, not your will. You've missed the point. God is trying to humble you. He wants to expose in you your need for Him. Whenever your back's against the wall, it's time for you to submit to God's ways and God's will, regardless of how the outcome might affect you. Well, we can't leave the story without reading God's answer to Hezekiah's prayer. Jump down to the end of the chapter. You remember those macho angels that surround God's throne? Well, God dispatches one of them to fight against the Assyrians. It happens in the night. Verses 36 and 37 provide us the play-by-play. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and he remained at Nineveh. Obviously, Sennacherib ran into the real deal, God, and into a king who put his trust in him. Will you trust God? When your back is against the wall, will you pray Hezekiah's prayer? God can rescue you just as he did the king of Judah today. If you're surrounded, don't hesitate. Be a Hezekiah. Take the letter and spread it out before the Lord. Father, thank you.